So our subject this afternoon is who is God and what is he like? If I were to describe a person to you, uh, perhaps somebody I may have met on the street or in a coffee shop or somewhere, I'd probably describe their physical attributes, how tall they were, the colour of their hair, the colour of their eyes, what clothes they were wearing, what bags they were carrying, what profession they did. But when it comes to describing God, God has not described what he looks like. God has chosen to instead describe who he is, what his characteristics are. So throughout the course of our thoughts this afternoon, we're not going to be thinking about the physical form of God. And incidentally, God describes himself as a spirit. What we're going to do instead is consider the characteristics of God. The traits, the personality traits, if you like, of God. And in thinking about God, there's two major sources of information that we can think about. The first is this book that we believe God, through men and women, uh, through men, wrote the Bible. And also nature itself. When I look around nature, as I did driving from Glasgow up to Dundee, passing through the Glen Eagles, uh, is, that, is it the, the Valley of Glen Eagles or the, the hills of Glen Eagles? That kind of area. I was once again dumbstruck by how beautiful God's creation is. Over in the east side of Scotland here, you get to see very much more of the night sky than I do across in the west side. But you can sometimes, on a clear night, look up and see just how wonderful the creation that God has made. And God, in his wisdom, decided in Psalm 19 to tell us that the heavens declare something about God. I'll just read these words. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. What God is telling us through that psalm, and just the very short excerpt we've had from it, is that the glory, the wonder of what we can see up in the sky, looking at all the stars, tells us just how glorious God is. We might be proud of uh, our own creations, our own things that we can do with our own hands. I still have in my office um, a painting that Beth did when she was about six. And another painting that Jessica did when she was a bit older, when she was nine. Not great art, I have to admit, but we need to reflect on the fact that they were six and nine respectively. But I still look at that with pride. Because my children did those things. But when we look up and see the beauty of what God made, and the infinite size of what God has made, we can start not necessarily to comprehend how glorious God is, but to start to comprehend a little bit of how glorious God is. The characteristics, the traits of God's personality that I'd like to think about are these that are listed on the screen. We'll just read through them. God describes himself, and it's important that we note that God describes himself as these things. God describes himself as infinite, as non-changing, as self-sustaining, as omnipotent, as omniscient, which means all-knowing, omnipresent, which means always there, as being wise and faithful and just, Merciful and gracious, loving, 
and holy and glorious. Some of the audience this afternoon might think of other characteristics that I've not put down on the board today. That's absolutely fine. What we're not trying to do is try and put God in a box and describe him as being exactly that and nothing else. What we're trying to do this afternoon is trying to encourage us to think once again about God and who he is, what his characteristics are, what it means from the start of time through to the future. And our talk does this afternoon talk about the start of time as it's recorded and the future. And God is present through all that. I believe that it's important that we think about these three key words, though, as we think about God. That God is infinite. That God is perfect, and he describes himself as perfect. And that God is consistent. And these defining qualities, I believe, should be considered as we consider each of the characteristics that we saw on the screen before. So as we go through these things, and as we will go through these and look at passages that refer to God as, as being, for instance, non-changing or self-sustaining, then we should, I think, also think about God having that characteristic, but being infinitely of that characteristic. So infinitely just, perfectly just, and perfectly, and, and sorry, consistent in his justice. One of the things that, I'm sorry to refer to my children again, one of the things my children commonly say to me is, who's your favourite? <laughs> or yesterday I was walking with Jessica, you've got a brother and sister, who is your favourite dad? And they're always trying to trick me and try and get me to say something that I really don't want to go down the road of. But I think I would have to admit that I've not been the best dad at times in my life. There are times when I've let my kids down. And they'll tell me there have been times when I've mistreated one of them compared to how I've treated the other. You did that for Beth. You haven't done that for me, Dad. You treat Benjamin so... You give him such an easy ride because he's the youngest compared to me who had to do everything all on my own. Yeah, yeah, okay. The reason for mentioning that is the qualities that I have as a father are different from the qualities that God has as a father. And I need us to try and remember that. We're not comparing God with people and with their frailties. God is perfect. And God describes himself as being infinite, self-existing, without origin and without end. Now, I'm approaching a significant birthday. I'm not going to ask you to guess. It's, it's coming up to my 50th in a couple of years, in a, 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 a number of years from now. <laughs> and I guess beyond that, maybe 30, 40 years of my life will, will carry on. I was born in 1971. I had a, defi a definite start. 10th of November 1971 was my birth date. God, we're not told when he came into being. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 to 2. He, uh, the Bible introduces us to God and everything really follows from this verse. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning, so that's at the start, 
before anything else really happened, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And there's many people in the world today who are thinking this description of how the world came into being isn't adequate. Because God must have come from somewhere. The idea that something has always existed troubles them. It troubles me at a certain level. But I have faith that what God has recorded for us in the Bible is true. And that in the beginning, God was there. And that what he did was create everything that we see around us and brought it into, into fruition. So rather than life coming from, as some would say, a random massive bang that suddenly exploded outwards and caused life over time to come into being, the Bible teaches us that simply God existed and that he created everything that we see around us. Everything started with God. Looking through the days of creation that we read about in Genesis chapter 1, God created light. God created the atmosphere that surrounds our planet. God created the sea and the land, the vegetation, the sun and the moon and the stars, the animals. And then on the final day of creative work, he created man. You and me, our forebears. God is without end. He's without origin, without beginning. And we can contrast that with ourselves. I talked about my date of birth. But if we think about the creation of man, let's have a look at it. Genesis 1 verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle. So whereas God does not have a particular time at which he came into existence... We understand from the Bible, people did. God, and it was based on God's decision as to when this would take place. Then we can look at verse 7 of chapter 2, where it's again emphasising, perhaps really telling us clearly that God made man. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So whereas society in large swathes of it would describe our coming into being as being random and subject to chance, the Bible teaches us that it was a definitive decision that God took to create life and to give it life. If we could turn also to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. This talk, by the way, is, is, um, was originally given in a very different format so hopefully as I've compiled them onto the slides for allowing us to think through these ideas, I've got the references right. Exodus 3 verse 14, where God describes to Moses who he is. And that's our subject for today, isn't it? Who is God? What's he like? And God says to Moses his name. He tells Moses, in a sense, I am that I am. That name has been translated through Different languages to Yahweh or Jehovah. But those words for me have very little meaning. That's what it means. I am that I am. And it also has a wider time expansion meaning as well. In that, yes, God was describing himself at that time. I am who I am. 
but he was also referring to himself in the past. I was who I was, and I will be who I will be. And that's all tied up in this name, I am, that I am. Coming to the second characteristic, tying in with the idea of God being without end, God is immutable, which is a posh word that I had to look up, meaning doesn't change. I wanted to put it up because I wanted to pretend to be intelligent. God, we're told in the Bible, is immutable, doesn't change. My kids accuse me that I change according to how I behave with them. God, we're told in the Bible, as a characteristic that he has, does not change. Malachi 3 verse 5 to 6. Okay, we're taking it a little bit out of context, but he makes the clear statement, I am the Lord, I change not. And the reason I've got John 3 verse 16 up there is because God changing not has a clear relevance for us in terms of our faith. We're told in John 3 verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now that statement that John wrote down 2,000 years ago or thereabouts holds true today. The God that gave his son 2,000 years ago is still the God that loves the world and loves the people within it that he gave his son for. And God has a purpose for mankind. We read about God creating man. But it's not like the, kid, the, the pictures that my kids made. That I've now got up on the wall. And that I sometimes glance at. God made people to have eternal life. To live life with him. We live a life now where we're subject to mortality. I'm certainly now at the age of 48, 47, whatever I am, unable to do some of the things that I would have once foolhardily not even thought about. I was showing off to my kids three years ago, trying to hang upside down from some bars. I was showing off to my mum as well. Hang upside down from some bars. My legs hooked around the bar and uh, I'm a little bit heavier than I am than when I first did it. Collapsed onto the ground. That wouldn't have been a problem 20 years ago. My shoulder went all sort of funny. And I'm frail, and I'm starting to recognise that now. But God didn't make us to be frail. God made us to be vibrant animals, vibrant beings that would praise him. And whilst we're subject to the fr fragility of life now, because we did not do as, as, a, as a, a species, we did not do what God wanted us to do, we sinned in the form of Adam and Eve. God still holds out the promise to mankind that what he made us for, he will return us to. Let's have a look at Romans 8 verse thought about God loving the world so much that he gave his only begotten son 
And that's something that was then, 2,000 years ago, but is now still valid and true of God's nature and his characteristics and his wishes today. And this is what Paul writes. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are all killed the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. These words, once again, were penned about 2,000 years ago. And they were speaking of the confidence Paul had in the love of God for his creation and for those who would turn to him in particular. And nothing, nothing that was in the experience of Paul, nothing that is in our experience, can separate us from the love of God. And so when we think about God's characteristics, we can think about those words that we had up on the screen earlier, infinite, consistent and perfect. And the love of God through Jesus is consistently there for us and it's perfect in its application. God describes himself in the scriptures as being self-sustaining. We just enjoyed a lovely lunch together. And thank you once again to, uh, to my hosts. I had breakfast at about eight o'clock. A lovely bowl of Kellogg's with little strawberry red things in it. Very nice. But if we hadn't, if we think about it, if we hadn't had our breakfasts, if we hadn't had our lovely lunch together would be starting to flag a bit by now. And there's many people in the world, sadly, who do go without food and don't enjoy the, the, the good health that we enjoy. But I've been informed by people who know that the, the, the lifespan of a person who doesn't have food is quite limited. We heard the terrible news of that young girl um, on holiday who died through, through hunger within 10 days of going disappearing. God describes himself as being different from us. God doesn't need to take in food to be able to carry on living. God describes himself as sustaining. The Father, he says, hath life in himself. He doesn't need food from outside. He doesn't need water. He doesn't need an external energy source like the plants do with the sun. God is his own sustaining force. And he also, in Genesis 17, verse 1, talking to Abraham, describes himself as being the almighty God. And we'll think a little bit more a bit later on about almighty and what that means. So whereas, again, the emphasis is we are limited, God is unlimited. God also describes himself as being all-powerful, omnipotent, almighty, Anybody recognise that? Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz. Thank you. The gr- I can't remember quite right, rightly how he described himself. The Great Oz, the, the this and that. And yet, at the end of the film, when the curtain's pulled away, he's a stammering, bumbling 
individual who can't really communicate that powerfully and certainly isn't the character that he portrays on this, uh, this fake imagery. God is not like that. Whereas people make claims about their power and their might, whereas individuals like Pharaoh and Caesar claim to be gods, there is only one God. And we're told in the likes of Daniel chapter 2 that even the people in power are put there by God so that their power comes from God rather than from who they are or what they are. Only God is truly almighty. Let's have a look at Psalm 33 verse 6 please. Just to try and get a little bit of understanding about just how powerful God is. Psalm 33 and verse 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as an heap, he layeth up the depth in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. <coughs> Do excuse me. Sometimes I'm guilty of not thinking enough about God. Thinking enough about how powerful he is. But I absolutely love the way that the words of the scriptures convey to us the idea of the power of God. It doesn't say, and God worked and toiled hard to get the earth made in months and years. And No. It just says, God spoke, and it happened. Would that in my house I spoke and things happened. God spoke, and everything we see around us, not quite this building, but everything we see beyond that building, the sun that's now shining through, the stars that come out at night, the sea that we see out in the the, the Tay estuary, all these things God made. The life that teems in the estuary. The life that is growing on the hills. All these things God simply spoke. And they came into being. Isaiah 26 verse 4. God describes himself as having everlasting strength. And I emphasise the use of the phrase there, God describes himself, because the Bible is effectively the word of God. Yes, it was written by men, but it was the words of God. Isaiah 26, verse 4. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. So we talked earlier about God being without end. Here we have the idea of God being everlasting, tying in with him. I mentioned earlier about me dropping from the monkey bars because my strength wasn't quite what I was, what it was. Here we've got a description of God. He doesn't become frail. He doesn't lose power. He has everlasting strength. The creative power that God unleashed in the creation, however many years ago that was, 
It's the same power that he still has now. God has not become diminished or weakened over time. His strength is everlasting. God, as well as describing himself as being almighty, without limit to his power, God is also describing himself as being omnipotent. Sorry, this is a continuation of the previous slide. But we note that God, at the time of creation, decided to create. And that decision process that God has is another characteristic of his. He is will-driven. What I mean by that is that he has a plan, started at the creation, and he has a plan that continues through today and will be brought to fruition. And from my point of view, that's confidence-inspiring. I look at the, the promises of politicians outside about how they're going to deliver Brexit or what they're going to do about taxation, what they're going to do about laws, what they're going to do personal to me about the environmental impacts we're doing to the world. But these are plans that are very short-lived and they're very often unable to fulfil them. What we understand from God as we learn more about, more about him about his, through the scriptures is that he has this plan, he is accomplishing it, and at some point in, God willing, the near future, that plan will be brought to its final end point. But God is described as being strong and mighty. Psalm 24, verse 8. Who is the king of glory, he records, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And when the likes of the psalmist reflect upon God, they record him as being a rock, a strong tower, a foundation that they can rely on. All these things are characteristics of God related to his strength and his ability to achieve things. <coughs> <coughs> You excuse me. When Abraham was promised a young boy, when he himself was was certainly a lot older than I am, it would have been in his late nineties, and his wife in her late eighties, early nineties as well. These are the words that are read out to them, or that are said to them: "Is anything too hard for the Lord?" No, nothing is too hard for the Lord. Because you, God, have made heaven and earth and nothing is too hard for you. Nothing. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. So when we think about the likes of Abraham, who had the promises made to him, that he would inherit a certain portion of the land, then after the expiry of his life, he hadn't inherited it. You could be left thinking, well, where's the promises that God's made? How reliable are these promises? Until we realise that God is and will able to raise Abraham. To bring to fruition the promises that he's made. So when that comment, with God nothing shall be impossible, that also relates to the resurrection from the dead. So 
Sorry this text is so small, I didn't realise it would come out so small. God is omniscient. It's ironic that I should say I didn't know that it would come out so small just on this particular slide. I've just clocked that. But omniscient means all-knowing. And God describes himself as knowing everything. I pretend I know a lot. um, But God truly does know everything. Isaiah 46, verse 9 to 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. So whoever we might build up in this world, nobody, nothing is like God. Because God goes on to declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So from the very beginning of time, God is saying, I've got a plan. The things that you can't see at the moment, you can have confidence in because of who I am and what I'm promising in the future. But God isn't a God who just sees the big picture. Very often I can be accused of seeing the big picture and not recognising the need right in front of me. Maybe you're the same or the opposite. God recognises us as individuals. God talks about a sparrow falling to the ground and God himself knowing about it. We might see a couple of birds out there now. No, no, not out there right now. But do you ever actually, even in your garden, observe the sparrows or the animals and recognise them when they come back? We have... Cheeky chappies, I can't remember what kind of animals, what kind of birds they are. They're brown with a gold flash and a red throat. Some kind of chaffinch, bullfinch, something like that. A bird. Sarah reckons she recognises them because they've got their own quirky habits. What we do know is that God recognises each and every part of his creation. Each and every part of his creation, God knows. So much so that the hairs on our heads, on my head, he can count. He knows exactly how many there are. He recognises when one falls off. And so when we're doubting God, we just need to think about those words that God knows us so much. He knows, and thankfully in my case, the uncountable number of hairs on our head. God is omnipresent, which means he's there all the time. My kids, again, sometimes my wife also says, Keith, you're away too much. You're in China this week, going to Indonesia in a couple of weeks, and next week you're in Germany, last week you were in Ireland. And Keith, you need to be around a bit more to help out. That's something I'm working on. But God is present, not just here, but everywhere, all the time. I find that mind-boggling to think about when I'm flying and I'm looking down at the cl- through the clouds, seeing all these tiny little villages with all the lights on, thinking God can see everything that is happening in each of those people's lives all of the time. But that is the God of the Scriptures, who sees everything all the time. 
And we consider the experience of Jonah who thought he could run away from God. Go and speak to the people of Nineveh, God said to Jonah. I'm not going to do that. And off he went, different direction. We know this the account. He got swallowed by the giant fish. But even in the belly of the fish, swimming around in the ocean, God was still there, observing, seeing, caring for Jonah. And it's the same, I believe, in our lives. There may at times, of course, be times when we think, I wish God wasn't seeing what I'm doing. But God is there all the time. Should we turn to Psalm 139, please? One three nine verse seven to ten, where the psalmist writes, "Where shall I go from thy spirit, or where shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the grave, behold, you're there." There is no escape from God in the sense of wanting to escape, but isn't it comforting to know that God, who gave His Son for us, is there? every moment of our waking moments and our sleeping moments with us, observing. And as we read at the bottom there, God is always near. Not as a threat, but for those who love him, he sends his angels to camp around those who fear him. God describes himself as wise, and I've just put that little reminder up about those three key uh, definers. That God is infinitely wise. God is infinitely, uh, uh, sorry, is perfectly wise. And God is consistently wise. Romans 11 verse 33, please. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been his counsellor? The knowledge and the wisdom of God is described as being unsearchable. Not because it's hidden away somewhere and unable to be identified where. It's because it's so vast. It's impossible to get to the far corners of it, as it were. It's huge. It's unmeasurable. God gifted Solomon with wisdom. And the Queen of Sheba came to visit. And her spirit, her breath, was taken away with, effectively, the outputs of the wisdom that God had given to Solomon. Solomon, like you and I, was a flawed individual and his wisdom only got him so far. But if the effect of a man's wisdom could be so much as to take the the breath of a queen away, then the origin of that wisdom must be so much greater. And I think, honestly, when the kingdom comes, I genuinely think our breath will be taken away. We will be awestruck by everything that we see and hear. 
One of my memories as a child, and uh, I'm often accused of having not a very good memory about things, but one of the memories is uh, my little Labrador, Caesar. Caesar was our dog before I was born. I remember him having to be put down, which was a catastrophic and kind of defining moment in my life as a, as a nine, ten-year-old. But one of the characteristics that I remember of Caesar was he was faithful. You'd take him out for a walk. He wouldn't go off with other people. He would stay with you. If you said when there was a threat of something, send them off, Caesar, he would bark. Shake a paw, he would shake a paw. He was faithful to his masters, to my father and my mother, and me by, by deference. Now, it's probably a bad analogy to try and convey the idea of God's faithfulness with that of a dog. But God is truly, truly faithful. There's no wavering of friendship. One of my daughters struggled a little bit with um, the genuineness of friendships recently. But when times came hard, those friends weren't around anymore. God is not like that. God is faithful. Deuteronomy 7 verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God. And what does it say about his faithfulness? His faithfulness who keeps covenants and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. God's faithfulness is enduring. It's not a good time kind of faithfulness. It's a faithfulness that is a commitment because of who he is. And his faithfulness is towards keeping covenant, an agreement that he made with mankind through the death of his son. And his faithfulness is such that 2,000 years on, even though you and I are flawed individuals, God is still willing to show his faithfulness in what he has done and continue to show mercy. And the God that we know is infinitely, perfectly, unchangingly faithful. God is also described as just, which means that he does the right thing. Treats people in the way that they deserve, or maybe, as we'll see, don't actually deserve. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. God uh, is described by Moses, but by influence by himself through Moses to us, is the rock. God's work is perfect. All his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. One of the things the world is clamouring for is justice. The right thing to be done in those circumstances that the world sees itself in. God, we understand, is perfectly just. Sometimes it can be difficult to understand as we read through scriptures. We think, well, that challenges me a little bit. But as long as we remember that God is just, then I believe as we come across these challenging passages, 
that the challenge will start to remove itself once we remember who God is. And God is a God who, yes, condemns the unfaithful, those who don't recognise him, those who don't turn to him. But he's also the God that offers salvation to the faithful. And the judgments of God on individuals are justly based. We hear of travesties of justice from time to time, from the, the criminal justice system. But with God, there are no travesties of justice. God is just in all his dealings. And from my point of view, because he is consistently just, he consistently applies the same kind of um, mercy to everybody who is willing to receive it and to turn to him. It gives me confidence in who he is, what he's promised, and what he's promised to me. Hebrews 11 verse 6. Without faith it's impossible to please God, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I can't think of a more powerful passage in scripture that tells us about God. He exists and he rewards you if you turn to him. And that is his justice. By inference, if you don't believe that he is, and if you don't turn to him, believing that he will reward you, his justice will be meted out in a different way. But how confidence-inspiring is that? If you turn to God knowing that he exists and that he's a rewarder of you, where do doubts and fears arise? Yes, we might recognise inwardly who we are, our weaknesses, but those are known by God already. They were known by God at the time that he created Adam, that you would be like you are. And he still committed his son to die for each of us. He is a rewarder of those who seek him, brothers and sisters. God is merciful, we're told. And if it doesn't sound too trite, I am truly grateful that God is merciful. Because mercy is about treating us in a way that we, is, is about not treating us in the way that we deserve. And the way that we deserve to be treated is simply death. With no, nothing beyond that. No hope beyond death. And yet God in his mercy, tells us through the scriptures that we're to follow his example, but that we're to recognise that we're imperfect, that we're marred by sin, which is simply not following God's commandments, and that we're to recognise that none of us is any different or any better than the other. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And he who says that he is not a sinner is a liar, and therefore we're all worthy of death. The wages of sin, we're told in Romans, is death. But God is merciful. Even though that is what we deserve, God offers us mercy, a way out, forgiveness for the things that we do wrong. But it's important to note that we have to ask for that mercy. It's not ours by right. Death is ours by right, and God, by his mercy, extends to us his forgiveness. 
And that ties in with the next slide, God is gracious. And this relates very, uh, very distinctly with mercy. Whereas mercy is about not treating us in a way, sorry, I'm getting confused in my slides. Mercy is not treating us as we deserve. This is, this is very related. Um, Exodus 33 verse 19. Uh, we talked this morning about how privileged we are to understand the scriptures and to understand the message that God has made to us and that God could have chosen anybody from the world to teach this to. But for some reason, God has chosen each of us. Exodus 33 verse 19. God said, I'll make all my goodness pass before thee. I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before thee and will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So while the death of Jesus was for all, the covering it provided is only for those who turn to God. And those who turn to God, we're led to encourage to believe in the scriptures are those who are chosen. And what a privileged position we're in. But we also learn from Matthew chapter 5 that God is gracious to all of his creation. That the very provision of food, even to those who don't believe, is a demonstration of God's graciousness. We learn that God is loving and it's no surprise that we come across this one, given what we're just talking about. But he's infinitely loving, perfectly loving and consistently loving. Can we turn to Matthew chapter 7 verse 9? Because what God does through Jesus is give us a simple allegory for us to think about. Uh, Matthew 7 verse 9 to 10. Um, we'll read verse 7 connection. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Everyone that asketh receiveth, he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. And here's where the allegory, the picture, the representation, if you like, starts. What man is there of you whom, if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your father, which is in heaven, Give good things to them that ask him. A father out of love, seeing his children hungry, would provide for them. Would give them bread, or as the example here says, fish. But he wouldn't give them something that was either not helpful or even destructive to that young child. The child clamouring for bread, the father wouldn't irresponsibly give them a stone and say, chew on that. The child desperately wanting some protein. The, the father wouldn't turn around and say, well, here's a scorpion. Just be careful of that tail a little bit. In the same way, God provides for us in the ways that we need. And I think the provision that God gives through his love is now. That God will provide for us in ways that perhaps we don't necessarily see or fully understand. And his works of providence. But also God provides for us in the most fundamental way. Going back to that passage from John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
Final but one slide now. God describes himself as being holy, which means simply being separate and sacred. Dedicated holy to something. And that's what God wants us to be as well. God wants us to be holy, to be dedicated to him. God is described just in one verse, Revelation chapter 4 verse 8, as being holy three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And God is like, hopefully we've, we've come to understand this through the course of this afternoon, but God is like no other being. There's no other being that can make a claim to be like God. No other, God is cons- no other being is consistently and perfectly and infinitely filled with the characteristics that we've been considering this afternoon. And by God's mercy, um, we can strive to be holy, to be separate for God, following him and him alone. The final characteristic that I'd like us to think about this afternoon is God being glorious. In Exodus, Moses asked to see God's glory. And we understand that Moses was put in a, in, in a little cave in a cleft in the rock. And God passed by, covering himself over so that because Moses could not see the full glory of God. It was too much for him. And yet when he came down from the mount on another occasion, his face was shining so much, the children of Israel couldn't see him. They could not look at him. He was so bright. God is a glorious God. And God's glory will cover the earth and the sea. We look outside, us, outside at the planet that we have now and we see the destruction the pollution, the problems that mankind has brought to the world. But God promises that this will not always be the case. The knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth, we're told. And we have been created to give glory to God. We're told that in Isaiah 43. The God that made the earth, the God that sustains the earth and each of us now, has made a promise to each of us. And he's demonstrated his faithfulness through giving his son and showing his commitment to us. But his commitment extends beyond that. It extends to sending his son back. And at the time that his son comes back, we'll each have the chance to stand or kneel before Jesus and to respond. But in the days that remain until that moment, We have a daily choice as well, to respond in acknowledgement of who God is and try and be following, like Jesus did, the way that God wants us to be. And on that subject, there'll be many, many talks from this very platform on other occasions. So thank you.